Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode seven, Election Cyber Hacking. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. On today's episode, I want to explore the issue of election security through the lens of cybersecurity to understand what cyber hacking means in the election space, figure out who exactly does this hacking and the threats that the United States faces for November. I'm joined today by a guest I'm absolutely thrilled to have on the podcast, Dr. Jessica Baer. Jessica is a lecturer and co-director of the Cybersecurity Initiative at the Henry M. Jackson School for International Studies at the University of Washington. She teaches classes on cybersecurity, US foreign policy, and cyber activism. With her colleagues at the Cybersecurity Initiative, Jessica has translated evidence into action regarding the legal and regulatory frameworks around protecting critical infrastructure in the US and abroad. She is also the author of the book, Expect Us, Online Communities and Political Mobilization. Hello, Jessica. Hello. So Jessica, I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast for a number of reasons, um, mostly because that like me, you are an egghead political scientist who has studied fairly standard topics in our field, you know, like uh, US foreign policy, international security, political mobilization and threats to democracy. But you might also be unique in serving as kind of a missing link in helping our discipline, which is mostly occupied by Luddites like myself, understand how all of these topics are shaped by and also shape what happens online. So first, let me ask you, if I'm the son of a presidential candidate, do you know a good place I can get my laptop fixed? <laughs> well, first, you should get on an airplane and fly across the country um, to find a good place. <laughs> In DC. Uh, no, my, my first serious question is, what is cyber hacking? Um, so cyber hacking, I would probably use the term hacking um, rather than putting cyber in front of it, mostly because if you look at the history of the term hacking or hacker, it, it is a term that is related to computers already, right? And the cyber um, basically points at the computers or computer systems. Um, you know, it comes from the late 50s when folks at places like MIT uh, really wanted to distinguish what they did from what, say, engineers did. You know, they you know, played around with systems, they tinkered, they didn't follow the same rules or norms that say an engineer would and, you know, maybe tried to gain access to things or change things in ways that people didn't want them to. And then that, uh, and by things, I mean, computers, you know, networks, they, that then moves forward in time until probably the 2000s when we start seeing a, hacking just become this super elastic term where we can like hack, we hack our lives and our sleep and whatever that meant, means more like a disruption, I think, or you know, some sort of profound information that leads to a disruption. But when people who are talking about cybersecurity are talking about hacking or hackers, um, they really are thinking about the sort of older lineage of the idea of a hacker. And I think you know, in political science, for us, what we might think as a field about is the ways in which, you know, how do we differentiate or break up that category of, of a hacker who's doing something to gain unauthorized access to computers or computers and networks. You know, we have like criminals who probably want to, you know, make money. We have, you know, government employees who clock in at nine and work till five for like the NSA or whatever. We have hacktivists who, um, you know, are using hacking techniques, you know, in service to their activism. You know, we have patriotic hackers who maybe are working 
aligned with a government's agenda but aren't actually employees of, of, of a government. You know, so there's like a lot of different types of actors within that category of hackers or hacking. But that the focus really is on the you know computers, computational devices, you know, networks, the internet. You're, you're reminding me, did the movie Hackers come out in the 90s? Like, is the term that old? I mean, you, you say you're from the 1950s professionally, but sort of like in the, in the um, zeitgeist, the word hackers has been around since at least the 90s. Yeah, if you want, there's a really cool resource that I, you know, Disclosure contributed to called Hacker Curio that um, one of the, the sort of leading scholars or a couple of leading scholars in the area of just the, you know, hackers put together with all different people that, looks into stuff like that like where where does this the popular culture idea of hackers come from i think a lot of people actually point to um uh war games the, which none of my students have seen usually you know the movie where matthew broderick oh from the 80s yeah that they, yeah. they actually the, the what they say is is that um ronald reagan and you know different members of congress viewed that and it like shaped the way they they thought about basically policy because it freaked them out essentially yeah, yeah. I, our students haven't even seen movies that came out five years ago, of what I'm learning. Um, it's good to remind ourselves and our students of these war games and hackers. So what, specifically with election stuff, when, uh, when people say hacking or they say, you know, cybersecurity, what are they thinking of in this moment? So I, people th are thinking of all different things. I think this is one of the things that is interesting about cybersecurity as an area is that where people are really talking about, like there's no single conversation, but I usually sort of divide it up into three categories. You know, there's the category of um, trying to access or damage systems that are directly related to voting. So, you know, electoral rolls or, you know, what's happening in precincts or voting machines, um, but that's one category of um, hacking related to elections. Another is for me, the second category would be hacking, trying to gain information that um, a particular actor might use to try and change how people vote in an election. And this is what we would, you know, we saw in 2016 with two very well-known um, Russian uh, groups try are trying to get information um, from the DNC and not just the DNC, you know, they also targeted the RNC to then try and change the election outcome. And this is a, a long-standing pattern, you know, you know, once you do that, often that information is secret. And so you can, because it's secret, it's difficult for the person who owned it to say anything about what was in it. So you can insert other information if you want, right? There's all kinds of things you can do. And then the third category would be, you know, our fake news, disinformation, misinformation category, where, you know, in some ways is quite different because you're not, you know, having to try and access systems that are close to you using computational methods. Instead, you're actually using the affordances of different social media platforms in your favor, right? You're making it look like tons of people believe something or you're trying to intimidate someone from speaking about something. And even though that's become sort of pulled into our conversation about election security in some ways categorically different. So can we talk about that second one for a minute? Because I think actually um, the, the second and third thing that you mentioned are, are often conflated in the minds of voters. And I think that number two has actually gotten lost in the narrative a little bit about the hack of the DNC, the supposed hack of the RNC, but the, those that hasn't been released. But it, it of course was released in the, in the case of the DNC and um, John Podesta. Could you say specifically how 
you know, the DNC was quote unquote hacked in 2016? Yeah, so um, we have two known, um, what you call advanced persistent threats. So this is a term that means a collection of extremely capable and usually well-resourced hackers, um, usually, it, usually always working for a nation state. Um, so we have two of the most famous Russian APTs accessing the DNC at, at two different times, probably independently of each other, because they both took the same some overlap in information. So it was as if they didn't know that they already had something. Um, and looking for information. And there were reports prior to that that there was, and it would still be going on, this sort of broad scale effort to try and gain access to you know, various institutions in the US government, federal government, um, you know, trying to tar targeting individuals who might have access to confidential information um, with phishing campaigns. So this is where, you know, you get an email and it tries to get you to click on something or download something and then um, infects your device or tries to get you to change your password. And then of course you give them your password to a particular account. Um, so and that's was, what happened with Podesta, right? Allegedly. Yeah, right. And okay. It's so sad because there was also an information sharing issue there where the, he, there was a miscommunication with their IT department as well. Right, right. Um, and there was like the other mis in information issue where like the FBI was trying to tell the camp, you know, the DNC that right. and the campaign that they, you know, maybe had been breached and nobody was picking up the phone calls, right? This sort of comedy of errors in some ways. So you, though that type of, I mean, there, there's just general espionage happens, right? And that's something that states do and um, everyone kind of accepts. But in the case of the DNC, right, they're going in and they're trying to find information, um, probably of all different kinds. But the output we saw was the stuff that goes to WikiLeaks that's attempting to try and hurt Hillary Clinton's campaign, essentially. And this practice is an old practice. So um, Katie Pierce in the UW's communication department has written about this in post-Soviet states. You know, the, you try and get information that's incriminating about a political opponent. And if you can't get incriminating information um, exactly, you can insert incriminating information into valid, you know, real information, right? Because it was, it was secret. So, um, no one can say like, yes, that was there. It wasn't there before. Um, there are ways to, um, you know, look at metadata and try and verify if something was, you know, real or not. But once you're in that realm, a lot of it is how well it's going to plug into different narratives, right? So in the case of the DNC, right, this is a very old practice of trying to basically get information, dirt on someone and then release it in, in an attempt to, to basically hurt their, hurt them as a political opponent. You don't have to be the chair of a, a presidential campaign to get these. I remember last spring getting a number of these types of emails from, you know, allegedly from our colleagues, actually other faculty member at the University of Washington, where it would say something like, please click on this link or please call me right away. But what they had done is they had changed the end part of the email. So instead of being at uw.edu, it was at something else, but it was made to look like it had been emailed from somebody who you know fairly well, who, who is also on faculty. And we continually get these warnings from UW IT security about don't trust everything that you see. If it's not official communications, don't click on it, blah, blah, blah. So this is actually a common thing that could happen across organizations, not just presidential campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is in my sort of intro to cybersecurity, international cybersecurity 
class, I have a whole unit on like humans, like basically why we suck, right? Like, <laughs> but then why we don't, you know, we trust each other and we share information with each other. And those two things are the things that make us vulnerable. Um, you know, in the case of people who maybe should know better, right? They're working for, you know, the US government. Everything I've read says that there was a very concerted effort to try and get people, anybody who might have access you know, to compromise them, um, their accounts, not them personally, but their accounts. And you know, whatever we want to say about how well people are trained to not fall for that, mostly, most of the stuff I've seen, all this is a very difficult thing to get a you know, global or universal picture of. Phishing is like the easiest, best way to compromise an organization because um, people will eventually click on it. And I've seen like, I mean, you know, again, there's no good numbers, but some huge percentage of quote unquote cyber attacks actually start with an email attack. You'll see that language in news stories. And what that, that means is, you know, spear phishing. Someone sent an email that was, you know, your boss needs you to buy a, you know, Apple music card for them or whatever. Or, right, exactly. You know, in Podesta's case, that his account had been compromised and he needed to click this link to change his password. So it's an so, extremely effective technique and you hear people who are like physical penetration testers. So the people who actually try and get into organizations will say, you know, if I can't get in and like plug something like a thumb drive into a machine, if I leave it in the lobby, often someone will pick it up and carry it in. It's just, you know, people, it's just humans, right? We just, that's just what we do. We, we click on things and we download things and we tell people things and are helpful. In some cases, it's just us being helpful that can get us in trouble. So talk about the politics of then how these hacks play out in a campaign. So you, you talked about the Russian infiltration of Podesta, the, the Clinton campaign, as well as the DNC in the spring, kind of early summer of 2016. And we know from the Mueller report, as well as from other uh, news organizations, that then this information starts getting leaked. And it gets leaked around about the time of the Democratic convention, and then it gets leaked um, uh, throughout the campaign and then later on in October, obviously with, um, with coordination with the Trump campaign. How, how do you see the, the politics side of this? Like why, why are voters susceptible to reading an email from John Podesta or you know, some communications between two staffers at the DNC? I think that's a hard question that I would probably defer to people who study political communication in campaigns, but you know, there's something about like when you have this information, like who does it resonate with and when does it resonate? So like, for instance, I'm sure you're watching with this Hunter Biden story, you know, Twitter is just going nuts over it. And then I go over to Facebook and basically nobody in my network is talking about it at all. It's like, it doesn't even happen. It's not even happening, right? So and we should say that by all accounts, it's a fake. I mean, basically the basis of the story itself is fake. It's like totally, it's, it's not just fake, but it's just, it's like kind of laughably fake, right? Um, it's it's not a very, even a very good job of this if you're going to plant bad information, you know, information to try and sway yeah. something. So absolutely, it's fake. But you can see there where a story resonates. It's like resonating with a particular audience, right? And so you would, as a campaign, think about, you know, when is this type of information the most likely to change the trajectory of something? how the, the mechanics of that and whether it really does change, you know, there was this big conversation after 2016 about whether all of the, you know, what we were calling fake news then, but disinformation and misinformation changed votes. Same with, I mean, some of the places I've said in the past, whether like the, 
you know, memes coming out of these like sort of icky corners of the internet, you know, won the election for Trump. Um, I think it's actually quite hard to prove in those cases that that type of information spreading online at least you know, has this sort of like win or lose impact on elections. But um, certainly, you know, we saw a lot of research after 2016 about, you know, when the Comey stuff came out that that really did impact undecided voters. Um, so you would imagine that a savvy campaign would be thinking about that when, if they have information, they're sitting on it, however they got it, you know, when they might release it to have the biggest impact. Well, I think, I mean, the thing that this New York Post fake story reminds me of is exactly kind of, I think, what Roger Stone and the Trump campaign's um, thinking was in Manafort in October with the quote-unquote October surprise. People forget that the same day that the, the Access Hollywood tape fell in early October or was posted was the same day that WikiLeaks started posting um, uh, things from from the uh, from the Clinton campaign, and it's like you know, can anybody recall a single email, con you know, a single thing that was said in an email? No, what they recall is just sort of this narrative of um, fitting into this idea that that Clinton had been less than honest, or you know, there, that there was corruption in her past, as well as the investigation into the email server issue, which was separate that the FBI had done. And I think with the with the New York Post story. You know, supposedly there's uh, uh, inappropriate photos with Hunter Biden. It's like, well, why didn't they publish those? Like, that would be the big story. So is the splash takeaway just sort of, you know, nobody's going to read an email about a Burisma executive and be able to figure out what's going on. But are people able to just see the headline and it feeds into this narrative that perhaps, you know, there are things in Biden's past with his son that are embarrassing, as well as perhaps, you know, his son may have you know, inappropriately been in, in a place that allowed him to you know, be, be hired by a firm for whatever reason, um, due to the due to who his father was at the time. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think also, if you even step up a level too, you know, I think something that the Trump administration has been quite effective at, which is not a technique that is novel to them, you see it in other parts of the world is, if you just flood, I mean, we're just sort of flooded with scandal all the time now right and people just kind of turn off right they people can't process that much weird stuff i mean a lot of it is weird right and so we just sort of turn off or we stop trusting what we're seeing in the media um, and in that undermining of trust in media um, also is a fairly effective tactic as well it means we're going to turn to our close social networks for information maybe more than we already do and um, you know, we misinformation travels along those networks, you know, fairly effectively. So um, I think there's also just this sort of bigger picture of, you know, more noise. It's just like Hunter Biden, Ukraine, you know, drugs, right? There's, it's wow. not- Wow, how do I make sense of things? Yeah. <laughs> yeah right? People are just like, ah, I don't know. And, you know, but Hunter Biden's bad, right? So I, I, I agree with you, but I also think there's like this bigger- you know, sense of exhaustion too, that makes people just stop trusting things and stop engaging. And I mean, as a political scientist, I actually, you know, I don't, I don't know that this is true. This is my instinct. I think they've overplayed their hand. You know, I don't, um, I was on a panel a couple of nights ago and, you know, trying to think about like, what is an October surprise? And, and I, I, I had a prediction on something that Rudy would, would release um, that had been planted by the Russians. But the conversation very much touched on the fact that it's like, can you, I mean, could there be any surprises at this point? Like there's been so many quote unquote surprises 
Um, and there might be new, new surprises, but just sort of like going back to the old narrative, it doesn't seem to really produce the same effect that it once did. Yeah, I think the question, you know, the, we, looking at Trump's COVID diagnosis is like a good example of that, where we, the information, maybe because of just sort of incompetence or maybe purposeful, was really confusing. And people just all, I like on Twitter, which where I'm, I'm seeing like a broader swath, like on Facebook, right, as people in my more immediate network. So, you know, it's more unified and like, political opinion but on twitter people from all over were kind of like what's happening you know spinning out these conspiracy theories essentially about that and um, i think the climate itself is something climate in which things are less impactful because of that right the president yeah. had COVID and was in the icu i think right and they just didn't seem to have the same type of impact it would have had under you know, Obama or Bush or Clinton. I think we would have been very, as a country, much more concerned and upset. And instead it just sort of fed into that bigger circus. So can we go back to that first type of cyber hacking that you were mentioning on kind of actual election infrastructure, voting machines and the rest of it? Um, can, can you say, you know, maybe what we know or think we know about 2016, what the threats were there, and then kind of what you're worried about or thinking about for 2020? Yeah, I think so. We know that we, um, so the United States, the way we vote is is pretty different than other places. So, you know, in like somewhere like Australia, everything's managed federally. It's pretty much uniform across the entire country. Here in the United States, I've heard numbers as high as like we vote in 1800 different ways across the country. You know, it's managed by states and also counties. And um, it's just, so diverse the way we vote is so diverse and then we have these sort of long policy trails of things like the 2000 election where we end up getting all these voting machines being used in states and computer scientists have been saying for a very long time that they aren't secure some are worse than others and you add into that that the other types of infrastructure around voting are the elections are also not necessarily secure like you know, a lot of thing, a lot of entities in our government, like cities, are under-resourced when it comes to cybersecurity. You know, so we counties; these are all these sort of key plate, key key elements in elections in different parts of the country, and they don't necessarily have the resources to have super robust cybersecurity, you know, plans or systems, especially before 2016. So one of the things about um, cybersecurity that's not funny in like a haha -ha way, but in sort of an ironic way is that, you know, if you're, you have a limited budget and you have to decide how to spend it and you've never suffered a severe um, breach, then it's probably, cybersecurity is probably not going to be as high on the list as maybe even physical security, right? After 2016, that changed, but it's not just also the, the election processes themselves is also the political parties. Political parties are small organizations that are don't have a ton of resources. So before 2016, there's been a lot of work since then to try and make them more secure, more resilient um, as well. Um, so we have this landscape of all kinds of actors, all of whom are doing different things that are important. Many of them have low resources and you know are doing something that's just so critical to the to the running of this country. In addition, before 2016, um, our election systems weren't designated as critical infrastructure by the Department of Homeland Security. So that meant that there wasn't the same level of resources available to states as there are now to help like try and protect the systems. And um, then on top of that, 
both because of sort of overall Republican voter suppression efforts, as well as the Trump campaign sort of fixation on the idea that the Russians tried to get him voted, voted in. Um, election security of any kind has become a partisan issue. So there are basic law at the federal level that keeps sort of dying um, around things, you know, just baseline sort of foundational requirements that could be put into place for things like voting machines. So as a landscape, it's one that has a lot of issues. And um, I think in 2016, that was a pretty big wake up call, although other parts of the world have been thinking about this stuff for longer, wake up call for the United States in particular. And since then, there have been changes, things like um, election uh, systems becoming, you know, now under government facilities in terms of our 16 areas of critical infrastructure with the DHS. Um, there's more resources available, um, but I still think there's a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of those bad machines around. There's a lot of voter rolls that are probably pretty easy to access. Um, and to be honest, in the United States, um, you don't really need to access, you know, like Washington State doesn't really matter in the big sense, right? You don't need to, you know, a lot of the conversations were about the entirety of the United States. You know, we, after 2016, you know, we really just need parts of Florida, right? There's much more targeted efforts could be made, could really hurt the election or throw things into question enough that it would open the door for things like violence. When you use the word breach, what do you mean specifically? Like, what does that mean at like a granular level? That could mean all kinds of things. So that would be someone accessing a system that they aren't supposed to access. So maybe that means getting into, uh, you know, Washington State's voter rolls and deleting our addresses out so we don't receive our ballots. Maybe that means actually trying to break something. So infecting the networks, you know, our systems of a particular agency. It could be like there's this, you know, the, this huge botnet. So a botnet is essentially someone infects tons of computational devices and then takes control of the power of all those devices and then can kind of direct it at different things to help with a cyber attack or in the end of itself, you know, both Microsoft and US Cyber Command um, basically took a major botnet out of commission this week, last week, because they were concerned that it would be directed at precincts on election day. So there's just like a lot of different ways that you can use computers to break computers or someone can access the system and, you know, get information or infect it. So let me ask you, I think a lot of people's attention, and rightly so, is on the issue of mail-in ballots. And in states like Washington and Oregon and California, you know, that has been, the, the count of mail-in ballots is, is fairly professionalized and, and now, you know, is done very well and competently um, because they just had that experience. And people are reasonably worried about states where there's now mail-in voting at scale, very large number of uh, mail-in ballots that aren't as used to that. But mail-in ballots are still a physical ballot that you could look at. And then, you know, if there's a dispute about whether or not it should count, that, you know, there would be a physical ballot to look at. Are you at all worried, though, that the attention that's going to be paid on the count of the mail-in ballots is going to distract from the ability of people to potentially breach the, you know, where the results are, are being tabulated and kept at all? Meaning, are, are we going to be focusing, not that we shouldn't focus on the physical ballots, but are we going to potentially be missing potential breaches elsewhere in the process that could affect the outcome? Yeah, I think um, the states that are have more secure, I mean, like, right, so one of the things in cybersecurity is there's no perfect security, right? So states with more secure systems 
Um, Washington is one of them. California is one. I think Oregon is two. Um, they have not just, there's this sort of risk management in the whole process, right? So, you know, once the, the ballots come in um, and they start counting them, they also will audit the results and they can do that because there's pay, actual paper that they can count. Um, but I think, you know, one of the lessons of 2016 is that, and uh, just the history of hacking actually, is that people are creative and now we have adversaries with a lot of resources putting their minds towards you know ways in which they could disrupt the process so i think we should be worried about all parts of the process and even i think in states where officials have been thoughtful about that washington is one of them i feel more secure about the election than in states where they you know officials haven't been thoughtful about about it so states where they're still using voting machines that are you know, known to be insecure um, and insecure, you know, also known to be problematic, like they record, you know, the wrong button push and other types of errors that aren't even like a malicious actor. They're just bad machinery, right? There's, I'm more concerned about those places than, but I think, you know, I mean, your, your research would say, right, like it's the, those moments of like counting, right, are really important where the, the ballots move from one place to another and um, how things are counted. Those are key, often key moments where things can be changed. So yeah, I would say, you know, worry about all of it probably. And do you, I, I think after 2016, we sort of have Putin as this boogeyman who is the threat to election security and the one for whom cyber attacks on the election infrastructure would occur. Um, for 2020 though, it seems like, you know, there could be other international actors like perhaps China, um, in your work, do you see the sort of threat landscape opening up beyond Russia and is all of it foreign or, or are there potential hacktivists domestically that might try to, to do something as well? Yeah, I think we should assume the landscape is bigger than just Russia. Um, also, just to loop back, I think the other thing that can happen if you're, say, Russia, you actually don't need to breach anything to make people not trust the results and that in and of itself maybe is the greatest victory, right? So you can make, get into our, let's say, I don't, you know, a system somewhere in the United States and make sure someone knows that. And then it throws everything into question, right? And that's actually a pretty effective hack in a different sense than, um, you know, maybe infecting devices with malware or something. Um, so in terms of actors, absolutely. So Russia, um, we should be worried about Russia. Iran also has been engaging in coordinated disinformation campaigns um, against the US. China traditionally hasn't really been involved in election stuff in other parts of the world other than Taiwan, but has recently been using um, disinformation tactics on Hong Kong. North Korea sort of does in South Korea. So this is, you know, there's this is a technique that you know, foreign actors use, and it makes sense that they would try and push elections and towards candidates that were sympathetic to them. So, um, but Russia is the one that, you know, leans into that the most extensively internationally. Um, that said, you know, domestic actors, um, domestic partisan actors are often, you know, equally a problem when it comes to election security. That can be like, you know, what we see in say India, where we see like Modi's troll armies. So this is not necessarily affiliated with a particular candidate, like officially, but are working on behalf of them. Um, this can be also that 
you know, there's firms now that will come in and, you know, run disinformation campaigns for you. Um, you know, there's like the Harris group in Texas and, you know, dark matter, there's like a bunch of them. Um, and so you see those groups rumored to be active in elections in other parts of the world, and though nobody knows who hired them, but they usually are favoring one candidate or another. So the, the, the formula there is going to vary based on country and what the country's international interests are and um, opponents are, um, but usually there's a pretty hearty domestic, domestic component as well. And if you're talking about spreading of bad information, that's also, you know, good work. So, um, you know, as we saw after 2016, people running these fake news sites just for the ad revenue, um, you know, that's also something that's going to happen everywhere is just, you know, entrepreneurs are going to also be right. Are there quote unquote cyber attacks that could occur to other types of infrastructure that's not election specific, but that might still potentially disrupt the election? Yeah, I mean, a major attack on, uh, I think you mentioned um, the electrical grid maybe could disrupt um, voting depending on how people are voting. It also could, you could cause sort of um, system-wide disruption um, with an attack on critical infrastructure that would keep people at home. So there are these like sort of scenarios that people are afraid of generally that if they happen at a critical moment could slow down people going somewhere. Um, United States is really big, so when you think about something like um, electrical grid tax, um, that would be hard to do in the same way like it happened in Ukraine, where it, you, they took out Russia took out electricity in Ukraine on a like sort of broad scale. Like a lot of the country, it would be harder to do here in the United States, um, but um, certainly you could, right? And there's other types of you know, there's been um, malicious actors you know, have breached dams um, here in the United States. Um, so, you know, there's people out there who spend a lot of time trying to think about these questions of like where a cyber attack could intersect with critical infrastructure and cause, you know, mass level disruption or, um, you know, these questions of like systemic risk. Like, is there something that could be targeted that would just have a cascading effect? Um, United States electricity, um, a lot of say our hospitals have generators and so it would be less, we're more resilient as a country to some of those sort of scenarios, but um, you certainly can imagine if, um, you know, you, there could be things that you could do. Like there are a lot of our stoplights are sm smart devices. If you turned all the stoplights in a city green, for instance, um, it would slow people down. So Jessica, everybody listening thus far is chewing their nails, pulling out their hair, stressed out, worried. All of this is possible. How probable do you think it is? I think it's low. So the electrical grid, like this is the one where it's sort of the, the specter we like bring up. Like in my classes, I talk about it because we have this example from Ukraine. It's very scary. It's like big. Um, you know, our number one threat to the electrical grid in the United States is squirrels. So and I've been at <laughs> with like people who, you know, work for the government. And this is the, one of the things they think about is our electrical grid. And they're like, they're squirrels. I've heard them say squirrels are our biggest problem right now. Are um, squirrels Democrats or Republicans or do they work for the Russians? Exactly. Um, you know, don't go releasing fleets of squirrels in certain districts. Um, so I think, you know, what to me seems the most probable is that this low levels of trust in the institutions are going to be our biggest threat. So people are not going to believe the results. 
And there's good reasons for that. You know, we see voter suppression efforts across the country. Um, we have like a big swath of people who are listening to these online conspiracies and, you know, the, all of those things together, I think are the biggest threat. Okay. And you have done this type of work, not just in the United States, but also in emerging democracies. Do you want to talk about kind of how you think of cybersecurity um, and protecting election security in the other countries you've worked in? Um, sure. So the way when we talk about cybersecurity in the United States, the United States government has a pretty specific way of thinking about that. And um, in the United States, the conversation around cybersecurity is usually related to security security, like, you know, military intelligence security. And we kind of separate out communications because of the First Amendment. So when we talk about issues like fake news and mis and disinformation, um, just information in general, that recently has been kind of pulled into the conversation about cybersecurity, kind of like privacy has um, as a sort of normative concept rather than as related directly to security of data. Outside of the US, you know, there are a lot of countries where speech and information are not considered not threatening. And so cybersecurity laws will actually include language around, you know, social disorder or panic being caused by speech, and it'll show up in the cybersecurity laws. So I say that as like a backdrop uh, to this question of like, once we get outside the US, I think a lot of our assumptions about what cybersecurity is, which are also based on the ways in which people in the US have adopted technology as well, we just think about risk, they don't necessarily hold. So including the fact that we are like, you know, suddenly concerned about elections. So in 1994 in South Africa, someone tried to hack the elections there. I know. So few people know this. Have you read Peter Harris's book about it? No, I haven't. Oh, yeah. It's an insider account. It's wonderful. Okay. I'll totally check it out because I love that that story. You know, this is like 1994 or like um, you and I worked on this project. the end of apartheid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was this huge, crucial election. We, you and I worked on this project in Myanmar that was, what was it titled? It was like information strategies for emerging democracies or emerging societies or something. You know, and when we got there in 2013, everyone was talking about fake news and it just really wasn't part of the conversation here in the United States. But meaning, me, meaning at that point, it was very relevant in Myanmar. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been relevant. It's been in campaigns as like a standard thing in Kenya since at least 2013, recently in South Africa as well. Also going back to to when Jacob Zuma was being, um, when the ANC was trying to get Jacob Zuma to resign um, and, and various allegations of corruption in South Africa in 2018, there was a lot of fake news. So this stuff has really been around in other countries for a while. Yeah, and I feel like we, you know, we talk about it, like you hear, I've heard people say with, you know, no irony, like Donald Trump invented fake news. And I'm like, man, that is so not true. And the problem with saying that too, is then we can't learn from those other places. Where well, and yellow journalism has a deep history, I mean, around the world, but particularly in the United States, people were publishing lies about their political opponents in the 1700s in the United States. Yeah, totally. It's like the, sort of the, in some ways, the shallowness of our memory. Um, so I think, you know, I, I remember being in Myanmar doing, running a workshop and, it would have been 2014, I think, on Facebook and like how Facebook works because their people really trusted Facebook because they didn't trust the government and they had the history of the media was, you know, you read the media to know what you needed to say if you had to talk to a government official, although it had liberalized by then. 
And so people really trusted Facebook because it was an external entity and everyone on the project was like, oh no, <laughs> you know? And talking to them about fake news, which was, you know, the rumors spreading on Facebook were causing violence essentially, you know, and see, thinking about that and talking about that as the sort of this problem that was external to us, but, you know, it's not external to us. And, you know, there's also countries, so if we, that's like the disinformation space, but if we think about like election security in terms of securing devices, you know, India has been voting on voting machines for ages and um, have researched whether there's any problems with the, the machines or their elections and have mostly found that the elections have run just fine. So there's other parts of the world also that I think we can learn lessons from in terms of just ways in which people vote. Well, I think one of, one of the topics that we've discussed in other podcasts is a lot of other countries have biometric ID. India has done a lot of innovations with um, you know, using biometric ID to get social services, things like that. We talked about biometric used for registration in Afghanistan. I, I think that's one of the things that Americans will always feel uncomfortable about. I wonder if you agree with that or if there's a way to get people to kind of move beyond the nervousness of very simple technology adoptions that could improve the process, make it easier, but would allow the government to collect you know, information about us that they might not otherwise have. Yeah, um, that's such a hard question, right? Because on the one hand, um, it's like our the national national feeling around, you know, IDs in general, unless it comes to voting, I suppose, as we've seen recently, is that, you know, why is the government tracking us and just say no to that? Um, on the other hand, you know, there's a lot of really credible concerns about those types of biometric databases. You know, the Indian one has been breached at least once and biometric data, you can't, it's not like your credit card, so you can't get a new retinal, retina. A new, a new, a new thumbprint, yeah. hopefully, yeah. <laughs> it's like nightmare, you know, a student once wrote a research paper for me about the practice of using biometric um, ID to distribute refugee aid on the um, Syrian uh, border. And I was like imagining, you know, what's the sci-fi movie here? It's like people with bags of eyeballs, right? Um, so, I think that there's, when we think about those, my, as a cybersecurity person, my first thing would just be, I think that there are lots of good reasons to have those. I think like in India, one of the big issues has been distributing, you know, aid to people who weren't receiving it, who really needed it. But then, you know, then we really need to make sure that we're securing those systems in ways that I, it seems that maybe we aren't right now. And, you know, I, I wonder about elections, you know, there's always this like level of messiness in them, right? So that we kind of look away from and we trust the process and then we have, uh, you know, the results. And um, they look, as you know, look different everywhere in the world. Having, I've seen them here and in Spain and heard a lot about the ones in Australia and, but they still come up with sound results, right? So um, I also get worried about this focus in on elections themselves as this moment um, that might make us stop trusting the process too. And, because we're never going to have a perfect process. Well, it's like I always use the analogy of a hotel room where you think there's been a murder, right? But it's all been cleaned up. So you go in the hotel room and everything looks fine, but the minute you turn on the black light, you see all the blood spatter, right? So it's like the minute you you shine a light on parts of an election process, um, even if you think it, it ended up okay, it can really reveal things that are problematic and that are suggestive of you know systemic problems that are just very hard to deal with. Well, and I think too, I mean, one of the things that I don't think we were doing is before 2016 is shining that light, the, turning on the black light. So 
um, you know, I think that's good that we are. So, and then states like, you know, Washington, you know, the, we can say like, we've been doing this and it's working and it just happens to be run by a Republican. And it, you know, is something that you could trust, right? We could do this in every state. And maybe I, I wonder, you know, like maybe that would sort of soothe the fears of voter fraud, but maybe not. Well, I think states are learning from each other and that's an important aspect and it takes time. Like it takes time to sort of see how mail, you know, mail in at scale works and then kind of learn from that. And Washington didn't do it perfectly early on, but then they learned from that and did it better later on. And, and other states should learn from that, I think. Yeah, I agree. So I wanted to, to, to kind of shift topics a little bit. Um, in your book, Expect Us, Online Communities and Political Mobilization, I think you provide a really excellent and authoritative um, account of and treatment of kind of what is the relationship between these online cyberpunk communities or hacktivist communities and real world political mobilization. And um, you, you talk about uh, groups like QAnon and Anonymous, but I'm wondering if you can say kind of in your study of these online communities, um, are there certain groups that we should worry about, other groups that we shouldn't worry about in this election? Um, I feel like particularly with the news this week about QAnon and, and the president not really um, answering those questions very well from Savannah Guthrie in the presidential town hall. This is so, sort of now all over the news and people are stressed out about it. But is this is, is a group like QAnon really something to worry about? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, quite chilling. So. Um, I know he said he didn't know who QAnon was, but then he said he knew that they cared about pedophilia. So he did actually know about them somewhat. Um, you know, QAnon's this wide, you know, sort of wide in the sense um, conspiracy theory about, you know, Donald Trump being a sort of a savior figure and these, all these pedophiles who are in positions of power and he's going to get rid of them. And it's managed to sort of make a sort of QAnon light that is about just the pedophilia element and then that is now moving through all different types of online spaces and one of the places that there's been a lot of press about in the last month is um, you know parenting groups the sort of the save the children tagline is like got a lot of legs when it, it moves through spaces online where moms in particular mothers are talking to each other about being parents um, you know much like um, the anti-vax community, um, these groups that um, sort of prey upon fears that we have, um, that plug into um, you know individual level decisions that people make, like whether to vaccinate their children or not, um, I think they are quite dangerous because they often will push someone in moments where they have to make a an individual decision that might have a long sort of tail of consequence, like whether to vaccinate their child or not. Um, the same with QAnon, you know, one of the things it does is those types of conspiracy theories is they undermine um, people's trust in overall institutions. And um, while I understand, you know, while there's a lot of groups in this country who have very valid reasons for not trusting um, institutions, QAnon is hitting like white people, you know, um, who you know, can really, it's just quite damaging to um, overall political processes to have those sort of ideas about rampant, it's just like rampant conspiracy. Um, people like Kate Starbird who study conspiracies talk about how also if you, someone believes in one conspiracy, they're more likely to start believing in others. Um, so, uh, so Jessica, I agree with you 
But you're a political scientist. You know the conspiracies, paranoia, rumor are deeply embedded, not only just in the human psyche, but particularly in American history. I mean, aren't these the same people that were, you know, that were in the Branch Davidians or Ruby Ridge or, you know, various apocalyptic cults during the first and second and third great awakenings in the US. I mean, there's always been a space for these people. Isn't QAnon just kind of the 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 place where they all hang out now? My concern is the um essentially the structure that they're using to move that move those ideas around, right? So because of social media they have the ability to touch more people faster. Um, and so there's sort of like the ooze in the overall uh, media ecosystem that can just slime further than um, they would otherwise be able to. So it's not just a single compound in Waco, Texas. They're actually, and I mean, it's also decentralized, isn't it? I mean, that's what the online space allows is it's not just sort of a single gatherings like a single physical gathering space but it's literally a decentralized global community yeah so then like lack of hierarchy to like circle back to your other question though the impact on um, political outcomes you know this is a question i don't think that we have a clear answer to i think it's overall bad for you know our country to have these ideas spreading so quickly and um, so effectively where you see like big protests showing up um, in relation to save the children in, say, England that are basically Q started by QAnon people. We have QAnon people being elected into office here in the United States. So, you know, but is, you know, what is the overall impact? Is the tent big enough for those, like, corners of, of lunacy and they'll fade out and then something else will take their place um, without, you know, significantly harming? I don't know. I, I, I guess, you know, we have a situation in which right now, the president of the United States is basically taking those corners of the internet. It's not just QAnon, it's things like Proud Boys and elevating them and making them more credible. And that will also help their spread. And um, it is, I find that quite concerning. I think it's harder to go backwards from that than it is to like open the box. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think what's interesting about the inner, the exchange between the president and Savannah Guthrie is my understanding of QAnon is if he actually were to explicitly uh, repudiate them, that's actually a signal to them that he supports them according to their belief structure. So it kind of, in a, in a sense, he can kind of do a wink and a nod. He can say whatever he wants or not. And they're going to read that as him still being supportive of them. Yeah, no, totally. And that fits into, you know, I have a friend from grad school who studied doomsday cults, you know, that, and she basically, what she said is what happens when the doomsday doesn't happen. And there's like a process that they go through <laughs> that she's like, Oh yeah, this, this happens a lot. This happens in Western Kenya and Eastern Uganda. Yeah. Cause there's always a specific date that's prophesied and then yeah. it doesn't happen. And then they kind of go back to their normal lives, but they've already done the bonfire, the vanities at that point. So they, they have very little money or assets cause they've gotten rid of everything. Yeah, she's, she's like, there's actually, you know, like the, the sort of how you justify it and explain it and the way that you say, well, we made a mistake, but, you know, it's just so, so elastic, right? So Donald Trump denies them and then that's proof, um, but he also acknowledged them and then that's proof and um, it's just, you just, it's non-disprovable, right? So, yeah. Oh, I didn't mean 2020. I meant 2040. We still got 20 more years of this to go through. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
Um, so I want to end up with I want to end with you kind of saying uh, big picture what you see the biggest cyber cyber threats are to democracy kind of in the next 10 to 20 years, you know, maybe either thinking about elections specifically or just kind of global democracy more generally. Yeah, my biggest concern is disinformation is the under the lack. Basically, we we lose our grasp on you know, there is no pure truth, but gatekeepers that help us understand what is really going on. And that means that we don't trust anything anymore. And for democracies to work, there has to be some level of trust in the system. Um, where where should that come from? That's attached to that about, you know, there's always, you know, groups that are excluded from democracy, even in democracies themselves. But I think that we still are seeing the impact of social media playing out on our societies and we're going to continue to grapple with that for at least the next 10 years if not more but who should be those gatekeepers i mean are we are we do you think we should go back to like real civics education in our education system at a younger age should it be uh you know mainstream media should it be political leaders yeah, so I, yes, I think that, you know, focusing on civic education, critical, you know, critical engagement with sources, this is something that we teach our students, right, but. Information literacy, data literacy, things like that. Um, also, I don't know, you know, it's hard to say how to, f the, with the media thing, you know, the countries that have a media source that a lot of people mostly trust is true, even if they consume partisan media most of the time, they seem to do better when there's dis with dis and misinformation. So places where people mostly think that the BBC is telling the truth most of the time, although they may not assume that as their main news source, they t tend to do better with the sort of bad information. And in the United States, we basically lost all those sources. And now we still have NPR and PBS. I mean, those are the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is the version of that, right? I, I guess maybe not enough people watch it. Well, if you look at the, the media consumption here, though, we don't, you and I probably, I mean, I consume those, but um, our media consumption is part of, is very partisan. So yeah, true. like the biggest indicator and, it, and there's no like overlap, like we're not like, you know, hanging out on Breitbart and, you know, watching PBS, right? We're, we're not, we're not consuming both. I have students who do, but mostly people just sort of stick to their their side and I don't think they're equivalent right the New York Times and Breitbart are not equivalent but people think that they are you know when they talk about it and that's also really bad for for uh, democracy in this country and to give you a sense Jessica to, to wrap up of what a Luddite I am I actually watch the PBS NewsHour now simply because the graphics are so simple and low rent compared to how distracting and sophisticated all of the graphics have got if you watch cable news now like I actually want to watch PBS because it's it's sort of the Luddite version of, of consuming the news. Like there's nothing distracting. There aren't all these chirons. There aren't weird graphics and flags flying in, in and out. It's so much better. It's like so much more beautiful. <laughs> I totally agree. Maybe that's it's also substantively better as well. I want to make that clear, but it's just the graphics alone for me are the reason to watch PBS. Yeah, and you see that in like, you know, I've spent a lot of time watching like the Australian equivalent of PBS and it's the same. It's like very beige and gray. Um, it's calming and seems more credible, but I don't know. Well, great. Jessica Bayer, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we are curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. 